yeah, we'll just get right into it. Like I said, I, I have a very, something different than I've ever even dealt with, a different topic than I've ever, I think in five, six, let's see, I've been preaching a total of maybe seven years counting the church we were at before. I don't know if I've ever even preached a message out of Revelation except once. Um, but when I was, I've been studying, well, really, honestly, I've probably studied the book of Revelation more than any other book. Um, but when I was basically browsing through the Bible this week to see and praying, see what the Lord would have me uh, talk about, and I don't know that this is, you know, led by the Lord or not, but this is the passage that certainly jumped out to me the most. Now, actually, I say it's the Revelation we're actually going to read out of the book of Daniel. Um, and we'll get to the Bible in just a minute. Backstory a little bit. The reason I avoid this stuff like the plague as much as I can is because it can be very controversial. And when it comes to prophecy stuff, there's like a thousand different views out there. And I don't, you know, I, I prefer to avoid controversial stuff in, in church as often as I can and stick to the fundamentals of the things that we believe in the things of Jesus Christ. But this, what I'm going to talk about today, well, I'm going to look at a parallel between Babel, the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, Babylon, the Babylon of the days of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, and then what the book of Revelation also calls Babylon, which I'm calling a spiritual Babylon. Perhaps a future Babylon, but I don't really think it's a future. I think it's a present spiritual Babylon. With a, There's some certain things to still yet be fulfilled in the future. And I don't think... Like I said, it's a very unique, I wouldn't even call this a sermon. This is almost more like a Bible study. And I, what I hope to be able to explain today is something that you guys can take home with you and get into the Word. And I really do believe that some of the things we'll talk about today is going to help, help you if you do study Daniel or Revelation or any of the other books pertain to what they call eschatology or eschatos, the things of the last days. I think what we will talk about today will really help you in your own personal study. I'm not going to give you necessarily anything profound. However, the reason that I am talking about what I'm talking about today is we're going to look at Babel, Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar, spiritual Babylon, and then the world that we live in. And it's very rare, like I said, very, very rarely do I really feel the need to warn people about things ahead in our near future and things that we're currently dealing with. However, the Bible does do it, and so I must also do it. The Bible does speak to the world that we live in, and it also tells us to be watching, that the day would not overtake us as a thief, talking about the return of Christ. Jesus himself said that you would know that his return is near even at the doors. In other words, you would know it's like it could be any moment kind of near by looking at certain signs. Well, to be able to understand these signs and to really set the world that we live in in the proper frame of reference, that's kind of what I want to help you with today. Now, first of all, the word Babylon, well, prophecy, if you've read any of the prophecy books, uh, a lot of prophecy is actually fulfilled in their time or it had an immediate fulfillment within days or weeks from when they said it. And then there are laced in there throughout the Old and New Testament prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, even still to this day, in the future. But anytime you look at prophecy, what we would call the genre of literature, you see it's immediately obvious to anyone that reads it is it uses types and shadows and allegories and metaphors it has a literal application, a literal meaning, but it uses shadows. Here's what I mean by that. The reason I believe this is easily, you can easily illustrate it, the reason that the word Babylon is used in the book of Revelation in many different places, even though at the time, even at the time Revelation was written 2,000 years ago, Babylon as an empire had already ceased to exist for six or seven hundred years. It had been gone a long, long time already. But and now at this point, 2,500 years a minimum has Babylon been non-existent. But the reason that Revelation uses that word, or the reason God inspires John to use that word, I really believe is simple. 
And it is to tell us to look at Babylon so that we can understand the picture that's being painted of this future world. Go back and study Babylon, the nature of Babylon, the ways of Babylon, the, the different things that unfolded. And I really think as I unpack this a little bit, you'll really see what I'm saying. It, like, here's, here's my point. It doesn't call it Egypt. You know, it doesn't call it Assyria. Even though these were former great world empires. I mean great as far as the extent, not as far as the morality of them. And so it uses this word Babylon to point us to look at the things of Babylon, and there's probably no book that deals with Babylon more than Daniel. And that is why, also, if you're studying Revelation, if you've ever studied Revelation or Daniel, either one, you realize there are so many cross-references here between these two books. There are so many things that even in, in Revelation, it's, it's, it doesn't say that it's quoting Daniel, but when I read the verses to you, you wouldn't know, was that Daniel or was that Revelation? They're worded so similar. And then, of course, Jesus himself, when speaking of future things that he was asked, we have an invasion of stink bugs, by the way. So, sorry, if you see me swatting a bug up here, it's stink bugs. I don't know if it's the warm weather or what. Like I told Katrina, I'm starting to think there's a government conspiracy or something behind these stink bugs, man. It's like they unleashed them on us. But anyway, it's the, it's the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pestilence and famine, man, you know. Um, anyway, lost my train of thought there. Long story short, there is no book in the Old Testament, it seems, that deals specifically with Babylon more than Daniel, which is exactly the reason why Daniel and Revelation are so parallel. Revelation's talking about a spiritual Babylon. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and the wrath that is due to her. And we see there's so many. Let me give you an example and then we'll get into it. What's an example of a parallel? Well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, when talking about he sees this great beast, which is all, again, it's types. It's not a literal animal. The beast represents something. And it tells us what it represents. It represents kings and kingdoms and stuff like that. Well, he sees this beast and he sees what he describes as a lamb that spake as a dragon and that, later that lamb that speaks as a dragon is called the false prophet in Revelation 19. But it says this false prophet convinces the world or whatever, deceives the world, tells them they need to build an image to that first beast. And it says whosoever does not worship the image would be killed. Guess what? Same exact thing happened in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 had an image built and they had a government decree. Whoever does not worship the image would be killed. Same exact thing. Um, also, we see things in Revelation about you know, restrictions against you worshiping. Well, we saw that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bow down. They was going to be killed. Daniel himself, we're going to read this passage later. The government actually made a decree that you could not worship your God. You don't have to worship our God, but you can't worship your God. And he ended up being thrown in the lion's den over that. And so, long story short, I'm not sure exactly why. Um, and just so you know, Alan, it ain't because of the article you sent me. I really was just reading through the Bible, and this really jumped out to me, what I'm going to end up getting to. But to set the, the full picture, to really help us to understand these things, this is also an important point. The word Babel famous Babel event, Genesis chapter 11. The word Babel and the word Babylon are the exact same Hebrew word. They're the exact same. It's just in the most ancient of times, just after the flood, 150 years after the flood, the word was pronounced Babel, and it was known as Babel. But once it became an empire, so to speak, it was now called Babylon. But when Revelation uses the word it's, it's all one word, Babel and Babylon, okay? And that's important to really get the fullness of the picture of what the revelation of Jesus, by the way, the, the revelation is the revelation which Jesus Christ gave to John and sent him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So it's, it's, again, when you look in Revelation, guess what? There's a lot of words in red there. It's the words of Christ. And when Christ was giving him this vision and this understanding and using this frame of Babylon, it's, I think we should look at Babel and Babylon to get the full picture because it was both of them. Both together make up 
what we what the Bible would call spiritual Babylon. Now, this is where I'm going to get into things that are controversial, but I feel that it's necessary. And we will open the Bible in just a minute and read some verses. But if y'all are familiar with it at all, you already know that what I'm about to say is true. Back in the days of Babel, it wasn't just the tower. The tower is what became famous, but they said, go to let us make a city, a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. I call it the us kingdom. Let us make us a name. Let us make us a tower. Let us do all of these things for us. Let us exalt ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And, of course, when God came down, it says he confounded the language. But it says something very interesting. It says, and they left off to build the city. They left off to build the city. It doesn't even actually mention the tower there. And so, obviously, the people were scattered by this miraculous confusion of languages or confounding of languages that God had put on the people. And already, if we stop and ask ourselves a question, why did God do that? If we really get into it, we already can start to see something spiritually happening there. Now, it's obvious on the surface, and everybody agrees to this, that the people at that time were not obeying the command. God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to spread around the world. But why did God do that? Why did he do it that way? Was it really he just was concerned with he just wanted people to be spread all over the place? Or was there something more happening at the heart or in the hearts of the men who had decided to set out to build this tower in this great city? And the answer is yes. God actually did what he did, confounding the languages to put the brakes on evil. That's ultimately what it was, is if all of the men in the whole world was united under one language, and it says of one voice, which really means of one mind. They were all like-minded in a sense, and now when I say all of the world, I don't mean that there were no Christian people there. No, it was still alive during that day. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were still alive during that day. But why aren't they mentioned there? And I think we'll see that later also as Babylon or Babel began to grow and man began to exercise their will on earth, the Christian remnant or whatever you want to call it was being squelched, suppressed, and driven out. I do not think at all that Noah was sitting there present during the building of the Tower of Babel and not saying something about it. I'm certain that he was. It's not recorded. His voice was being silenced, for sure. And what ultimately was happening, because man is a fallen man, and you get, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of fallen men together. And really what ends up happening is sin is increased. I mean, honestly, if you look at, it's not that city folk are worse than country folk or vice versa. We're all just people. But if you look at what takes place in the major cities, where is the abundance of sin really happening on earth? It's in the major cities. It's happening everywhere. Don't get me wrong. But in major cities where thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are consolidated into one place, sin is amplified and magnified and even exalted. And so God was putting, a, putting the brakes on what they were going to do. But the way it's worded, they left off to build the city. It's almost worded in such a way that indicates, but they want to finish it. They can't. They can't get together on it. But it's still in their heart. They left off to build the city, but they still want to finish it. And I've said this before, but what ever since then, spiritually speaking, the human race, mankind, in his fallen condition, has been doing everything in his power to undo the breaks that God put on and to come back and finish the city, to finish the tower. I don't mean literally in that location, that Babylon, that I don't mean that, but I mean spiritually speaking, well, let's get into it. One of the first things we notice about Babel, Tower of Babel, and Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon is that globalism, what we would call globalism, is at the heart of Babylon. Globalism was at the heart of Babel. I mean, Babel was a world uniting in opposition to God, but it was a people being united. And... Even in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, if you ever study ancient history, you'll realize 
it was the last world empire. Rome came later and Greece came later and they were great to an extent empires. But even God himself, when talking about Babylon and, and this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, he called Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold. And then another kingdom would come and take it over, but it wouldn't be as powerful as Babylon once was. And so really Babylon, the Babylon that existed 600 years before Jesus Christ, was a global empire. You can read in the book and you'll read that it says in nations, languages, and tongues was all um, basically under this realm of Babylonian rule. And when he gave the decree and the governors and the chief captains, it says, and the princes went out and announced all of this decree, they announced that it says to the nations and languages and tongues, everybody. They was basically making world laws when they was making laws because there was no one, there was nothing on earth that could contest with the strength of Babylon. And so globalism is in the heart of Babylon. And if you hadn't seen this yourself, I'll just tell you, there's been a move towards globalism in the last 50 years like we ain't seen in 2,000 years. And here's the thing. Globalism is actually Satan's agenda. It's not God's agenda. God is not trying to consolidate all the power of the world into one united thing. God is not doing that. In fact, God put a, said, no, we're not going to do it that way. Even in churches, you know, this is going to be super controversial, but I think it's more Satan's agenda for a whole bunch of churches to just come together into one ecumenical movement, one, you know, convention, one thing, where one thing is ruling over all the churches because Satan's agenda, it seems obvious, and I'll show you, is to consolidate the powers and then take it over from the top. And so really, globalism is Satan's agenda to bring all of the world under one accepted rule or law or type of government, which he himself can usurp, if you'd like to word it that way. I mean, even the Bible calls Satan the god of this world, and I like to word it this way, the god of the worldly, because that's really what it means. That the truth of the matter is you're, on, you're living for one or the other. There is no neutral ground. You're either living for Jesus Christ or you're living for Satan, whether we want to admit that or not. That is the case. And so globalism is actually Satan's agenda, and we saw it unfold with Babel. We saw it unfold again with Babylon, and again in Daniel chapter 5, when Babylon was at the height of its power, what did the people start doing? Man, they became exceeding sinful. Even the king himself had brought in the vessels of gold and all of this stuff that had been taken out of Israel. And it says in him and his wives and his concubines and his soldiers was drinking wine and partying and reveling. So when Babylon was at its peak, man, sin became mega abundant in the leadership. Which is, that's when you know it's done for. When the people are perhaps becoming more and more sinful, as long as the leadership is still holding to a godly morality, they can do what the Bible says and punish the evil. They can maintain laws and morals and ethics that keep the nation on track. But when the leadership itself is given over to a full revelry in sin, you know collapse is imminent. And we know that that's actually what happened. As soon as it tells us that the king of Babylon was drunken and... It was really a slap in the face of God because they was getting drunk on holy, out of holy cups, cups that were at one time in the tabernacle of Israel and Israel had been taken captive and they took all that stuff. And so they were profaning even things that were once very significant to the people of God and drinking wine out of it and getting drunk. All that. Well, what happened? The writing was on the wall. The king is actually being warned. There's enemies at your doorstep and his response was basically, no, nothing can tear us down. Nothing can break us. We're the most powerful thing in the world. And then the writing appeared on the wall. It says, you've been judged and found wanting. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the kingdom is going to be taken from you. And it says, in that night he died. But anyway, so there's a lot of parallels. And in, in the ancient empire of Babylon, it was certainly global. So what is globalism? At its core, 
It sounds good to the wisdom of man. Because at its core, globalism is this philosophy or this belief that really the only salvation for man is going to come from man. And to achieve that, we have to unite a world. It's going to be worded, and it is currently being worded, and it will continue to be worded in such a way that globalism is peace. Globalism is world peace. That if all of the nations could come together and stop the wars and stop the sanctions and all of the economic things that we do to one another, if the whole world could come together under one nation or under one United Nations, we would have peace. And globalism and the wisdom of man, that's how we will preserve the race of man for thousands of years to come. That is how they look at it. And without Christ in the heart, I don't blame them. When you think about the solutions they offer, in a worldly way, they make sense. Yes, I would love to see an end of war. Yes, I would love to see all men around the world working together for the good of one another. But here's the truth. It's all men are fallen. And without coming to Christ, without salvation, the last thing you want is to have one all-powerful rule where you can be, well, killed for not keeping whatever decrees come out of this new system. Because the men who will, who will be the leaders in the world system are as fallen and wicked as can be, that's the last thing that you want. And so I know to the world it sounds good. It sounds flowery and fluffy. Oh, yes, let's all just get along. Oh, let's tear down boundaries. Let's just be one people. Let's be the earth country. And that's what's at the heart of globalism. And we do need to understand that. Because when you're talking to people of the world or, you know, if you're commenting on Facebook or whatever and you're running into this kind of thing, if you just kind of launch in with an attack, they honestly think you just don't love people like you ought. Because if you love people like you ought, you would be for this. Because this is, we're trying to put an end to war and you're standing in the way. And ultimately, that is going to be what singles us out. When it all comes to a head, it's Christians, the last remaining Christians are the ones that's standing against globalism. But it has often been referred to in the past as what they call a new world order. But to rightly understand what that means, it's a new global order. Order being law, rule, government, whatever. And so when they talked about it, that's literally what they meant, is that we are pressing towards a global, united government or rule or rule of law. Let me give you a quote, and you'll understand why I'm saying this. This is the first time I've ever even quoted a non-Christian person in church that I know of. But George Bush Sr. said it August 2nd, 1990, 33 years ago. He said, we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and future generations, see they're wanting to save not only us but the future, a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations, plural. So he sees nations coming under this rule of law. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Now this quote is very, very interesting to me because I can just only imagine if you could transport George Bush Sr. back in time all the way to the Tower of Babel, he would have given the same speech. To the people at that time, the 100,000 or whatever that existed on earth, I can imagine that Nimrod or whoever gave a speech similar. We have a chance before us to form for ourselves a united nation and to be the keepers of the peace of the world. And even the way that this is sold to people, now you may be bored with what I'm saying so far, but stay with me, because there is a really good point in the end. Even when this is being sold to people, it's being sold in the idea of peace and safety and protection, and it's for your own good. What did they even say at the Tower of Babel? Let's do this lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 
Let's, let's build for ourselves something that will endure the test of time. Let's do this for our own safety, in other words. There's a lot of people that say, oh, it was direct opposition to God. They was afraid God was going to scatter. Maybe that's the case, but if they had any wisdom at all, they would have known, well, God can scatter us whether we want him to or not. It seems to me that really at the heart of it, they were saying, let's do this for our own safety's sake, for our own peace's sake, to preserve the future, lest we be scattered abroad, lest some evil befall us, lest an unknown enemy besiege us. Let's come together and unite our power and do this kind of thing. And again, I mean, honestly, the same thing happened with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And so I want to stay on track because I want to stay with the Bible here. That's what the book of Revelation is pointing us to. And so really to think of it this way when they call it a new, well, the word new, why is the word new there? Because there was an old, there was a world order. There was a global united mankind with one language and one voice. It was Babel. That is what it was. And this is them still marching towards finishing what mankind once started. And what they do not understand is that it is the devil that puts that in their heart to achieve his ends. And so let's get into that. What is Satan's goal behind globalism? And why does Satan care at all about globalism? Well, one, first, is actually worship. And I'm glad that two weeks ago we talked about worship. That every man on earth worships something. We are created worshipers. It is, you can't, man can't help himself but to worship something. But I actually took the time to point out the first several verses that talk about worship, the occurrences and then different forms of worship. But worship does have two forms, even acknowledged in the Bible. God himself calls two different things worship. He calls both worship, but he says one is in heart, spirit and truth, and one is just outward. It's what they call formal, bowing the head or bowing the knee. And if we look at it, it's so interesting to me. In fact, the most abundant word in Revelation chapter 13 with the seven-headed beasts with ten horns and all of that, the word that is most used in that chapter is actually worship. Worship. It says that they worship the beast, this nation. Remember that. It's not an animal. They worship the nation. It represents a nation. right? It, it tells us that in chapter 17. It says they worship the beast and they worship the dragon, which is referring to Satan, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, if we remember that the beast is representative of a nation or perhaps a conglomerate of nations, you could really say it that way. They worship the kingdom and they worship Satan, which gives power to the kingdom. And we know later when we read on, it says in all the world, in all the world, worships the beast. Those who have not their names written in the Lamb's book of life. So all the world, except for that true believer, is giving in some way their allegiance, their devotion to the kingdom. The kingdom being spiritual Babylon could be a conglomerate of nations like I said but worship is involved but the point I wanted to make also about worship God sees the hearts of man but Satan doesn't really Satan sees what's outward and so like in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon when he built the image and they made the decree that whenever this music is played you must bow they don't know if you're doing it just to acquiesce to the decree or if you're doing it from the heart. And guess what? They don't care. You just got to do it. That's the deal. Just bow, whether it's in your heart or not in your heart. We don't really care. You just got to bow. Now listen, this is where it becomes applicable to the Christian. God does care. And you can't really say to God, well, it wasn't in my heart. Because God calls both worship. In fact, if we think about when Elijah went to the mountain, it's like, Lord, I'm alone. They've digged down the altars. They've done all this stuff. 
What did God say? He said, I've reserved myself 7,000 which haven't bowed the knee. Whether or not it was in the heart of everyone that bowed, they may have been doing it just, you know, we got, you know, the government said we got to do it. We do it. We go along, get along. We're just going to bow. That way we can get back in the bread line and get our bread. That now suddenly you are not classified as one who didn't bow the knee. Whether it was in your heart or not. Y'all see what I'm getting at? Even though acts, movements, behaviors of worship may not be in the heart, it actually didn't excuse the people. And when Nebuchadnezzar made this creed, what did the Christians who made it into the Word of God, what did they do? It says they wouldn't bow. They wouldn't bow. And because they wouldn't bow, they faced a terrible judgment. God delivered them out of it. And it's super encouraging, but it's not a promise. And what they said is the attitude that we need to have for the days that are ahead of us. They said our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. He's able, and he certainly is. But they said, but if he doesn't, we will still not bow to you or your God. Now, people think that that's the wrong attitude to have. That, you know, look, it's not, you're not, it's not really in your heart. This is just the law, and we need to do everything that we can to keep the law of the land. But I want to show you another instance in just a minute where that's actually not the case. We do have to keep the laws of the land in any way that they touch upon us that's not really morally affecting us or doesn't affect your conscience. You know, you need to keep the speed limit. I don't, but we need to. You need to quit rolling through stop signs. I don't, but we need to. Okay? So there are th the laws of the land are a good thing in a sense. But when the laws begin to infringe upon worship, you do God's law, period. And this has application to if we could just take... I'm not going to, but if you took in your mind five minutes to relive the last three years of the COVID era... And all of the laws that came out during that time, the occupancy maximum, can't have more than 25 people in a building. And, you know, they closed the doors on churches and all this kind of stuff. And, and here's why they did it. It's just for a couple weeks. It's just a couple weeks. i got to be careful what I say. And listen, if you don't agree with this, that's okay, man. We're still brothers. I still love you. But that's bowing the knee in my mind. In my mind, because the Bible did clearly say to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and even more as you see the day approaching. So even more so. Don't do this. Do not do this. And so when it comes to things like that, I really believe that the church needs to take a strong stance. So, okay, back to the thing, the issue of worship. Number one, what is Satan's agenda behind globalism? Satan desires to be worshipped. And Satan, even though he may not be able to see the thoughts and intents of the heart, he does see outward actions of worship. He does see and feels exalted in himself some way when people are bowing, whether it's in their heart or not. You bowed, that's good enough for him. Even when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan said, bow and worship me. That's what he wants. So number one is worship. And so in Babylon, we see the future spiritual Babylon. He creates this image and it says in he deceives the world into worshiping this. It says that they worship the beast, they worship the dragon. There's a whole lot of worshiping going on. All the way back at Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, same thing. They built the image, and the law was you got to bow to it. you got to bow. And if you don't, you'll be killed. And then another place in, in Babylon, I'll, we're going to look at that in just a minute. In fact, go ahead and open your Bible, if you want to, to Daniel chapter 6 so I can read this to you. While you're opening there, the second part of Satan's agenda behind globalism is something that he has been trying to do ever since chapter 3 of Genesis in the garden. And that is to finally and completely rid the world of believers. To rid the world of Christians. One of the questions we want to do in the street interviews is, is Satan real or not? We want to see what people think about that. But, man, I'm telling you, <laughs> he's real. Uh, he's as real as, guess what? He's in chapter 3 of Genesis, 
and in chapter 20 of Revelation. So there's two chapters before him and two chapters after him, but everything in between his presence is there and acknowledged and known all throughout the Bible. Influencing nations, influencing individuals, creating what we look at, we see. Where did this movement come from? I'll tell you where. Satan. Movements of you know, uh, moral depravity that has swept our nation. If you don't realize that it's really at its core a spiritual illness that is being promoted and pushed and empowered, so to speak, by Satan. But his ultimate goal, why? It's, it's to rid the world of Christians. You've got to understand, Satan hates your soul. He hates your existence. If you're a true born-again believer, if you have the Spirit of God in you, Satan hates God. And if God is in you, Satan hates you and would love nothing more than to kill you. And ultimately, his goal behind globalism is to finally and completely eliminate the Christian influence, the Christian voice, and the Christian people from the whole planet. I mean, it may sound bizarre, but I'm telling you the truth. He wants this to be his rule, his people, and his domain. Look at Daniel chapter three, uh, chapter 6. sorry, And we'll just read uh, nine verses. This is just after the Persians and the Medes had come in and taken over Babylon, but it's still called Babylon. They just engrafted themselves into it, and this leader took control, and his name was Darius. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over those, or these three, over these, these 120 princes, to set over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first or primary, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then, listen, pay, pay, pay close attention here. Then the presidents, the presidents, and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, listen, these are princes and presidents. These are the leaders of the nation, the leaders of the empire. Then said these men, we shall not find occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said this unto him. King Darius live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together. In other words, conspired. Have conspired to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition, which means pray, whosoever shall pray to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, he shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. So first, I'm actually going to read the next verse or two. But what just unfolded right here? Babylon the most powerful empire in the world, a king, a Christian man who had basically been against his own will at times, promoted up through the ranks because of his upright standing and his wisdom and judgment and his direction and his ability to interpret for them the reason the kingdom is this way. They sing this great spirit in Daniel. They sing that he had something that the others didn't have. And kings back then were wise enough to say, hey, let's put this guy in charge. He knows what he's talking about. But what happened? The presidents, the princes, the governors, the counselors, and the chief captains literally conspired against them. Literally. And now think about it. In their minds, they're like, we got to get this. He's preventing the direction that we want to take this country or whatever. And I'm not getting into politics. This has nothing to do with politics. I don't really care anything about the politics. But they're like, we've got to get Daniel out of the picture. 
Now think about it. It's amazing. The whole motive, the entire motive from the outset of this new law was to entrap Christian believers. The whole motive behind it. They're saying, look, you're not going to find fault with Daniel. If you want to find fault with Daniel, you must create a law that he can't keep, that he won't keep. And once he doesn't keep it, now we can punish him for not keeping it. We can demote him. We can imprison him. But that's the only way you're going to get to these people. Because Daniel doesn't represent Daniel alone. He represents the true believer. And so they literally conspire to create a law that the king hears. And he's like, that's great. Nobody can pray to anybody for a month except me. Nobody can ask a petition of anybody except me. It exalts him. It panders to his ego. He's flattered by this. Because I'm sure they come saying, Oh, Darius, the new king of Babylon, you're so great. And we want to pay our homage to you for just 30 days. And so make a decree that all of the people, if they're going to pay homage to anything, if they're going to worship anything, if they're going to ask a petition of anything, that it all falls upon you, your great leader. Oh, great king, live forever. And so he signs it into writing. So even the king himself didn't really know there's a conspiracy afoot. But at the heart of it, that is exactly what it is. And when Revelation talks about spiritual Babylon, guess what one of the things that it says that they do? It says that he made war with the saints and overcame them. Killed them. And so we read of martyrs. All through the book of Revelation, really. The Christian believers who did not acquiesce to the decree. And so, long story short, there was actually a conspiracy. Now, if we, if we just be honest with ourselves and look at the world that we live in, the heart of the world hasn't changed from the Tower of Babel to the Empire of Babylon to the current spiritual Babylon that we find ourselves in. It's no different. And so... A lot of times we are talking to people about different things that we don't agree with the country's doing, but we can't really put our finger on exactly how to say why. And we don't necessarily know an exact Bible verse to say, see, this is how they do. But this is what I'm trying to help you do. Put your spiritual finger on what's happening. And when you are talking to someone about why you're not going along with something, you can show them this right here. You can say, look, I know that the law may seem outwardly good, but from its inception, how, how I mean, think about the plotting that took place. They had to come together and kind of plan this out. And they had to put it in such a way, we, we got to sell this to the king. we got to somehow or other make this sound legit. And so I don't really think that they went to all the counselors and all of the chief captains and all the princes. I just think the highest ranking people, the spiritual darkness in high places that we wrestle against, I just think they went to the king and just said, hey, everybody's on board with this. So just sign it. If you don't sign it, you're going to, you know, you're kind of coming against the whole of the government here. Just go ahead and sign it. And so he did sign it. But it's amazing to me to know that the heart that God reveals that we would have never known. But God reveals through his word that the entire thing was actually designed to end in death of the most famous Christian man basically in that time frame. The whole thing was sold as positive, but it was actually an evil agenda. And so it's really amazing and so fitting to the days that we live. I am fully persuaded that if not already, then certainly in the very near future, but already so many of the things that were mandated or recommended or passed into law was sorting us out. I really do believe that at the very least a catastrophe was used to promote an agenda that was actually happening behind the scenes. And again, I know it's controversial, and I apologize if I've said anything that offends you. I, I don't mean to be offensive to anyone. But I believe that it's obvious, and I believe that we can see a precedent for it in Babylon. 
that there was actually something happening in the, in the government behind the scenes that was like, ultimately, the people will never know this, but what we're really doing is by doing this, we're going to sort out those people who are with us or against us. The same thing with the image and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. What do you think that they were doing ultimately? We're going to play the song and everybody that's left standing is our enemy. That's how we're going to figure it out. I'm sure the wisdom of the world, and Jesus even said that the children of this world are more wise in the ways of this world than the children of the kingdom of God. And the children of this world, the world that's ruled by Babylon in the heart, they are very intelligent. They're like, look, we can never get everybody to actually, you know, sign the card and say, you know, I'm a Christian or whatever if they know that you're going to kill them. But I tell you what we can do. We can create a law and everyone that doesn't bow to it, there you go. There's your enemies, king. You want to get rid of the Christian influence in your country? That's how you do it. They won't bow. So just make a law that they have to. And so it's obvious here. It's definitely obvious here. We can all agree. That's what happened. It tells us that that's what happened. Is it obvious in our time? I think it's becoming more and more obvious. And it's, it's easy to take the approach of, yeah, you know, well, what happens is going to happen, and there's nothing I can do about it. And that it kind of is true. There's nothing that we can necessarily do about it. However, I guarantee you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the only believing Jews in Babylon that day. We already know that they had taken the nation, it says, captive. But why do we only know of three that stood and I hope that there were actually more that stood. But they just wasn't called out or it wasn't recorded. But it does matter. It's, I'm not telling you, let me be careful. I'm not trying to tell you what your duty as a man is or anything like that. But I am telling you that we have an example set before us that if Christian people do acquiesce, all we are doing is helping evil reach its ultimate goal easier. It, and it sounds unpopular to say, no, you take a stand against it. It sounds like, eh, you're just going to bring a bad light on Christianity. But you're actually not. Look at what it says of Daniel. Look at, um, where did we stop? We stopped at verse 9. Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, this decree that Darius had signed, when Daniel knew that it was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did before. I am not better than Daniel. I am not more holy or more wise or more righteous or more religious than Daniel. And it actually says that Daniel was the wisest man in that land. He was one of the wisest people that ever lived. And now the king has made a decree. And listen, the decree in this time, see, they softened the blow. The first time it was you got to bow to our God. Ah, oh, but too many people stood up against that. How about this? You can't bow to your God. For, and here's another thing. Just 30 days. That's it. It's not an eternal thing. Just 30 days, you can't bow the knee to your God. That's the only command. For 30 days, you can't pray. So we're not asking you to come to our side and pray to our God. But we're just saying for 30 days, you don't pray to your God. So you see how they've softened it up some. But what did Daniel do? It says, and when he knew, he knew that the writing was signed, he went and prayed. Immediately. And guess what else he did? Now I'm not recommending this necessarily, but it said he opened, his windows were open. So he didn't even hide the fact that he was going to continue to worship his God. He could have closed his windows, and that's maybe what we would think. Close the windows. Don't let anybody know. But we'll still go ahead and worship. I, I'm, I'm saying the Bible is setting for us multiple examples here where God was pleased and rewarded these people for standing with their heart toward the Lord. Now, if... You went and done this with the intention of creating opposition, I think the end of the story would be different. I don't think that was the end of the story, and I don't need to fail to mention that part. Daniel went and prayed, what did it say, as he did aforetime. He had already been doing this his whole life, and that's why Daniel was who he was, is because he prayed to God three times a day. Sincerely, I'm sure, it wasn't for show. It wasn't to be flashy, and it wasn't to create a controversy. However, he said, I will not cease to do that. Because he believed in his heart what you know, the Bible does say, pray continually, to pray without ceasing. And so when Daniel knew that this writing was signed, he went. 
And I can't help but think and apply this to some degree with the COVID stuff that happened to the churches. They was like, just 14 days closed. And that seems reasonable enough. And if you don't close, you're kind of been part of the problem here because we got this plague that's spreading and by y'all having your doors open, you're part of the problem. But wait, Walmart gets way more people a day than my church does and you did not tell them to close. Why? If your true concern, I gotta be careful, but if your true concern is public health and that's really what's in your heart and you're trying to save people, well then they should have to close too. But you see it didn't happen that way. They closed enough secular stuff to kind of make it look like we're not targeting the church. But it was abundantly apparent that they did not in one way target big business or anybody like that, you know. It was it was towards churches and towards believers. The occupancy maximums and all that kind of stuff. And so all right, let me bring this to a close. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I didn't even know I've been talking that long. This is by no means a prophecy. This is just a mere observation and a prediction. I do not have the gift of prophecy. I'm telling you 100,000% this is not a prophecy. This is just my own personal expectation. But within three to five years, I really believe we will face a bow-the-knee decision again. And I personally think, the reason I think this is because I read it on the Federal Reserve website a month ago. I read it, they laid it out there, what the plan was. And for they started November 15th. The experiment is supposed to end, I think, March 15th. And they had 245 companies participating, two law firms. You can read every bit of it. It's on the government website. It's not on a conspiracy thing. It's right there. I read the whole thing. And they have been doing a trial run of a digital currency and it says the whole point of the trial run is so that they can work out the bugs of implementing this digital currency nationally. That's the whole point of the experiment is at the end of the six months, the, the people are going to give the report and say, based on what, we, you know, what has unfolded in this experiment thing that these multiple companies have taken part in, this is how we proceed further. And I, it, it's, it, it only makes sense to me even that the world would go to a digital currency. However, we gotta understand this. And I know, and this is why I don't like talking about it sometimes, I know that we have heard our whole lives from almost every preacher that the world is coming to an end and the mark is gonna come one day soon. I know that we've heard that our whole lives. And so we're just like, you know, kind of full of that message, man, you know, give me something else. But it's true. It is true. It's true when we go and read the book of Revelation that we see a, uniting, a world uniting for the sake of ending war, for the sake of ending poverty, for the sake of all these things that are promoted as a good thing. And ultimately, guess what the mark of the beast really is doing? What's its ultimate purpose? And that's all I want to get you to see today. It's to sort out those that are left standing. Honestly. And when the Bible said this 2,000 years ago that no man could buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. When it said that no man could buy or sell, I know that there was no way they could envision how this could ever be. And we know now they're actually already saying it. In fact, in the report, one of the things that is talked about is that the government needs the ability to stop financial transactions among People who are against this, what's happening? Like if the trucker strike in Canada deal was a perfect example. By the way, Canada did the exact same thing. In fact, right now there's 70 nations that are doing the digital currency experiment to be able to implement it into their economic model. Well, Canada did the same thing. They had the trucker strike and guess what? They froze the accounts of all of these people in a digital way. Everything that they had digitally, PayPal, whatever, all of the you know uh, digital ways that you can pay and transact and receipt, they froze it all. They, in fact, cell phone companies and satellites in the sky, they put a lockdown on that zone. I don't know if y'all knew that or not, but they couldn't even access the internet on their phone. They totally shut them down. And then I've been listening and following some of the hearings that have came after that. But my whole point is, and I'm wrapping it up, is that I really believe, guys, I really, really believe that we gotta, we got to be 
We've got to be spiritually minded with the days that we live as much as we've ever needed to. We cannot take this idea of that doesn't matter. Just Well, we can take this idea. What still matters most? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters most. But we can't have the mindset of, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble here, man. Because that is going to get you in trouble with God. And that's the trouble you don't want to get into. And I really do believe that I'm not saying the mark of the beast is three to five years. That's not what I was saying. But I'm saying that the digital currency being implemented, I really think we need to start thinking about how are we going to make changes so that when it does come, it's not a death blow to me and my family because I'm not going to take part in it. How are we going to make changes in our daily life to, well, a wise man, knowing a flood is coming, is going to start building a boat even though the water isn't there yet. Well, we know that there's a flood coming called the Mark of the Beast. And in some way, we need to start gearing our mind towards this idea. Of this, there, there is no, there, it's, it's not meant for us, or whoever the generation is that sees that, we'll say. It's not meant for them to be able to continue this life as the usual, right through all of it. It's not going to happen that way. And so spiritually, ultimately I'm talking about spiritually, we need to be preparing ourselves to make a, a strong inner stance. Says, I, I won't, I'm not going to bow. Man, you're going to lose something. Well, I, I'm still not going to bow. Shadrach, what they did, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel, man, it was not easy. I, I, I'm certain it was not easy. By the way, they cast Daniel into the lion's den. It says God sent an angel and stopped the mouths of the lions. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel are actually in what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter, chapter 11. They're not mentioned by name. But it says, and by faith, they stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. It's talking about them. Well, it's not easy. It is not easy at all. It's not even easy for me to stand here and say all this today because I have no idea what's going to come after this. But it is the case. We've got to be ready to take a stand. I'm not saying the mark of the beast will happen in the next three to five years, but I will say that we gotta, we got to be realizing and waking up to the reality that they're trying to, okay? And it, like if you're, you know, kind of a fly caught in the web, yeah, and the first time the spider wraps a string around you, you may can sit still. And the second time he wraps you, you may can sit still. But if you sit still by the third time, you're done. You're locked in. You can't get out. And you're, you're in the web. And I fear that we're already about two strings wrapped here. And if we don't, in our minds, wake up and say, well, break out of that. i got to get out of that. Then you won't be able to get out of it by the time you actually realize what's going on. Now, I'm not saying that that means you'll take the mark. I don't believe Christians will take the mark. It says that they won't take the mark. Those who are truly born again will not. However, not everyone has to die. And I think if you're one of those that's four strings into the web and can't get out, you're probably going to end up being a martyr. I mean, I guess that's a great way to go. But God gave us a warning for a reason. Come out of her, my people, that you are not partakers of her wrath. Come out of her. And what, who is her? It's what I've been talking about, that great city, Babylon. So I'm, I'm going to leave that with you guys. And, you know, I hope that somehow I've said something that you can maybe feed on. You know, I know it wasn't an edifying sermon. I knew it wasn't going to be when I got up here. But I still felt like I needed to talk about it, even though we're a small crowd. And the message, this message really needs to be known worldwide. It is obvious that there is steps towards highlighting whoever you are and then squelching your voice. And then the next step will be the final thing. Jesus said there'd be kingdom would rise against kingdom and nation against nation. There'd be pestilence, famines. And then he said, and then they shall deliver you up and shall kill you for my name's sake. That's, that's kind of, we've seen nation against nation. We've seen pestilence. We've seen famine. And I really think we're about to see they're going to deliver you up and kill you for my name's sake. And I really am closing, but the last thing I want to mention is in Babylon, each time it happened, it was sudden. To the people there, it was sudden. It was like, today we're going along life as usual. We're reaping, we're sowing, we're harvesting, all this kind of stuff, and we're building. And what? The king did what? I got to bow to this thing now? It's instant. From one day to the next day, it was life is completely different, completely changed. And if they was... Christians paying attention during that time, they also knew the writing was on the wall for them, so to speak. We're about to face hard days. And that's, so that's what I, I lovingly want to leave you with. Jesus Christ is still the most important thing in any man's life. But we do have a job.
to warn people. And I want to warn you that over the next, I don't know, decade, it's time to have an inner revival, an inner commitment to strengthen yourself in a sense like David did, to strengthen yourself like Joshua did. And he encouraged himself, it says. He encouraged himself. That means he built up his own courage. Because it will take courage to be effective for Christ in the near future. Okay, I'm done.